Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. Today, we're zooming in somewhere very, very specific, Dunhuang, and our guest is a Dunhuang-based archaeologist, Neil Schmidt, who is talking with us about Buddhist grottoes from his current home province of Gansu in northwestern China. Now, a little background on Neil to start. Neil is the scholar in residence at the Dunhuang Academy, and I believe is the only non-Chinese、um, scholar in residence there. And he is one of the world's leading authorities on medieval Buddhism visual art, visual culture. Anyone you ask will tell you Neil's Chinese is amazing, and the roots can be traced back to Georgetown University, where he studied Chinese and East Asian studies. He later went on to Waseda University in Tokyo, and l'école pratique des hautitudes in Paris.、Yeah. Okay, I yeah, butchered yeah. it with my French, and finally <laughs> earned a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, Neil specializes in Silk Road archaeology and Buddhist studies, with an emphasis on the archaeological site of Dunhuang, where he is now. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. It's it's great to be with you. Um, allow me to sort of set the scene slightly for our audience. Why are we talking about Dunhuang? It's one of my favorite sites in all of China. If anyone's interested in Buddhist art or the Silk Road history, it's a must visit. And Dunhuang is a collection of, sort of Buddhist caves and art spanning over a thousand years, and it's way out there in the desert in northwestern China. I first went there in 1998 as a backpacker, and I rode a bike from the city.、Uh, I think it was like 25 kilometers, but in the desert, it looked, it felt really long. And when I arrived there, I realized, oh, oh, this is not one trip. It requires for me multiple days because it's just so beautiful. And I would say multiple days. I was barely, barely scratching the surface. As Neil would tell you, he spent years and years there, right? So, so tell me, Neil, what drew you to Dunhuang?、Um, when did you first hear about it? Yeah, so I I had heard about it because I was interested in、uh, in Buddhist literature, in Chinese literature, and Buddhist literature, and I knew that the earliest vernacular texts, Baihua、uh, texts,、uh, came from this place called Dunhuang, and so I was actually in Taiwan at the time. This is eleven years before you went to Dunhuang,、oh. uh, but I, yeah, so in 1987, and so I,、um, so I decided to take a trip across China and uh, uh, go to Dunhuang, make a sort of pilgrimage to find out where these texts came from. Question on these Baihua texts: What would it say about Dunhuang? Yeah, these are these are stories, right? So they're stories of karma and rebirth. That were used in liturgies. They were used to、uh, propagate the message of Buddhism. Often, the message of karma, the message of giving, and so then、uh, these are the earliest、uh, Baihua texts that we have、uh, from China, and we have quite a few.、Uh, and so I'd read a book by a professor at、uh, University of Pennsylvania, someone、mm. by the name of Victor Mayer, and、uh, was so fascinated by his translations and also the notes that he'd written because they were so erudite. And I later went to Penn and studied with him.
Uh, oh. But, you know, when in 1987, I really didn't know that much about the art in the site. And so, like you, I got on a bicycle and pedaled those 20, 25 kilometers. <laughs> Comrades on that. Yeah. <laughs> Not many Naive people do maybe. that, right? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> and, well, we were young, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> and pedaled across the desert um, and up that very long slope uh, to the caves. Uh, <laughs> And uh, was completely blown away by the site. I had no idea. And it, 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 is, so, uh, it is so wondrous, uh, you know, the Mogao Caves yeah. um, and the collection of, of art there. And it's art that spans, you know, a thousand years. It's the largest repertoire of Buddhist art that we have uh, in the world, uh, but also the most detailed. And of course, not just Buddhist art, but, and we can talk about this in a bit, but also a variety of other cultures that come together in this one place. And so it was with this first visit that I fell in love with the site and then have spent the rest of my life, you know, studying it and doing research on, on Dunhuang. My God, I, that, that, that's why I'm so curious about this conversation because my three days there, I was left with this sort of dazzling imagery in my head of the bright mm. colors from even Sui Dynasty, which is more than a thousand yep. years ago, right? But you spend another, you know, two decades, no, three decades <laughs> studying this thing. You, you must see this very, very differently. Tell me, how do you go about studying Dunhuang? I think like you, when you first go into the caves, they're so overwhelming, right? Yeah. They're so rich. Um, and so for me, it was just beginning to find ways to, to create frameworks and hooks to begin to place anything from, you know, the, the change in iconography and styles to the Buddhist scriptures that are presented in the caves to the sculpture. What's Amaz iconography? Oh, iconography. So it's, it's the pictorial programs uh, in the caves that show, for example, different deities, uh, different Buddhas. Uh, different scriptures that are painted as sort of icons uh, on the walls. The, you know, it's the sort of religious symbolism of the interior of the caves themselves. And so, so do you look at it more from a religious theme or structure framework or artistic skills well, framework? Well, for me, you know, so my, my background is also in Buddhist studies. And these caves are first and foremost Buddhist spaces. Uh, and so, you know, they have other functions. They're also political spaces. They're also social spaces. Uh, but I think if we <clears throat> if we start off with the, the premise that they are created most basically as donations to the Buddha, as donations to the Sangha or the monasteries, they're there to create merit. So what they do is they, uh, by creating these spaces, these pious and sacred spaces, you're spreading the Dharma, you're spreading the teachings of the Buddha. And mm. for that act, uh, you gain merit. Mm. Tell us about the, the, the social and political spaces. Like, I, I never thought about it that way. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, so we, uh, in most caves, not all, but in most caves, we have donors uh, painted on the walls. And so these are the people who gather together funds uh, to, to, to pay for the creation of the caves. Um, and so they're painted on the walls, typically in the lower register, and uh, they often have their names by them, you know, and saying, this is so-and-so and an image of that person. Uh, and so what, uh, what these donors do is they gather together funds, they uh, pay for the caves, but they're painted there forever uh, on the walls of the caves. 
Um, but they're also often painted in social order and a social hierarchy, which is quite interesting. Mm. Um, you know, so with the most important people closest to images of the Buddha. And then later, especially during the Tang and Five Dynasties period, right? So we're talking about seven, eight, nine hundred. We have very, very large images of donors who are political figures, right? The, the local elites. Mm. Uh, so, for example, the, the Zhang family or the Cao family. Mm. Uh, and they're painted in these processions, uh, often on one side of the wall uh, with the men and the other side women, in hierarchical order uh, with their social status sort of laid out. Uh, and so here we, we have a, a sort of political presentation uh, and also a social presentation of people who lived at this time. Mm, mm, interesting. Um, probably I never saw them closely enough. Now, maybe it would be helpful for you to describe these caves and also the layout of Dunhuang a little bit. So, so our listeners sure. have, a, have a visual imagination how that differs yeah. from, say, a European religious church or something. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, so let's start with the setting of Dunhuang itself, which is along the Silk Road. Uh, it's an oasis at the far end of Gansu. Uh, and it's really between two major deserts. It's between the Gobi Desert and the Takmakan. And these are some of the two most extreme deserts in the world. And so it really is an oasis in the sense, uh, a place of refuge uh, from the desert. Uh, and if you go then 25 kilometers away from those 25 long kilometers that we did on the bike, right? <laughs> from, from, the, from the oasis, uh, you go into this incredible ravine, uh, which has a cliff face, and then it has a river that flows in front of it. And it's a, a very, very small oasis. And then on either side of this ravine, you have these massive sand dunes, right? Ming Shashan. Yeah. Um, and then on the other side, you have the Sandway Mountains. And so it's this really sort of magical spot that's far enough away from the oasis uh, it, to provide uh, a refuge for monks, you know, who might have been doing ascetic practices. There were also a few temples there. But, you know, but it's also a magical spot because it's between these sand dunes which are really incredibly high, right? I mean, they're, they're sort of, you know, mm. uh, they're indescribable in, the, in their size. And then, you know, these bare uh, rocky mountains. And so in this ravine, then you have this very, very small oasis with hundreds and hundreds of caves carved into the cliff face. And these caves go back to the fourth century, uh, all the way up to the 12th or maybe 13th century. So it's this huge length of time and uh, 400, uh, maybe almost 500 caves are painted on the inside. They vary in size. They can be as small as a dollhouse, which is quite interesting. Really? Yeah. So when visitors come, I can point these out. They're really fascinating. So I have a project about these very, very small caves. Uh, they're sort of like Barbie size, uh, you know, but on the <laughs> other hand, <laughs> we have these massive caves, which are, you know, uh, meters, meters high. Um, and so I think one of the really important things to understand about the, this cave site is that these caves are carved into this kind of uh, what's called conglomerate. It's not rock, it's not hard rock, but it's compacted sand and small pebbles. And it's this type of geology uh, that allows these caves to be built. So they're very, very different from Longman or uh, Datong, you know, these, mm. these other cave sites. Um, so. It's, it's a sort of surface then. So these caves are carved in, uh, they're not natural, they're carved by man and they're carved into this cliff face. And then they're covered with a plaster on the inside and then painted. And so that 
special type of geology allows for uh, a special type of cave, uh, which uh, provides surfaces uh, in plaster that you can really do incredibly fine painting on. Mm-hmm. So incredibly detailed painting. Yeah. And so it's very, very different from, from the caves that we have in other parts of China, which are carved out of rock, which only allow a certain type of carving, a certain type of uh, artistic design. This sort of plaster idea in my head sounds very fragile, but it's amazing it is. that the art there literally stayed for a thousand years and not even losing any of the color. It's very dark inside exactly. in my experience. Like I only remember these little rooms that I, I could walk in, right? It's like yeah. a college dorm of, for two people mm-hmm. kind of that size, <laughs> right? Yeah, some are, some are much larger. The, when these caves were constructed, a lot of them had typically multiple chambers. There's a back chamber, the largest chamber, and then there's an antechamber. And then there was a structure on the outside, a wooden structure. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the cliff face has fallen off. And so these exterior wooden structures, uh, most don't remain, but we do have a few from uh, the 10th century, for example. Um, but it, it, what those structures did is they protected the caves. And of course, we have to remember it's extremely dry here. And that's the other, the, the other saving factor uh, why these caves are so well preserved. And of course, they're so isolated. You know, this is an, uh, another, another factor. But, but these, these pigments are relatively stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so because not a lot of light got in, uh, mm-hmm. because there's so little rain, so little humidity, the caves are extremely well preserved. Mm-hmm. Help us imagine what would it be like in its heydays? Like how many people would be there and what would they do? Well, this is a big question, right? Um, the, the big question is, how were these caves used? And I think over time, their use changes. Uh, so earlier caves built during the 5th, 6th, 7th century, they would have had a certain variety of ritual functions in them. For example, people going and making offerings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and also there are some that have a central pillar, which you could have circumambulated around. But later caves become more symbolic. And so one of the really interesting features of these caves is that they become increasingly sinicized. They become increasingly Chinese, uh, both in design, but also in function. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a feature that changes uh, and their use changes. But it was always considered a pilgrimage site. You know, how open the caves were to uh, public is a good question because these uh, often were family spaces. Uh, and so you wouldn't necessarily want a lot of people coming into your, your family cave. They also, uh, some of them have mortuary associations, so associations with the dead. And of course, we know in China that the living and dead are kept very separate. Um, yeah. So uh, another feature of the, the site, which is quite interesting, is that as you, as you go across the desert to go up to Mogao, there's that vast, what we call an alluvial plain, where it's just a sort of flat desert. But in that space are thousands and thousands of tombs. And so anybody going to the Mogao Caves would have been very, very conscious of death, right? As they traverse that space, as they walk through hundreds and hundreds of of tombs. That's the part we biked through, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, you now you travel up a road, it's of course paved, um, and you don't have a sense of the, the sacredness of that space. Right. And so as you travel up to Mogao, you're essentially reaching this sort of paradisical land, right? These, these magical caves, these, these incredibly wondrous caves 
that represent often represent paradises within them, right? A lot of the imagery represents, uh, you know, what are uh, pure lands, right? Jing mm. um, mm. And so, uh, you know, we have to go back, you know, into the past and, and remember that experiential element of actually traveling to the caves themselves, uh, you know, through this sort of land of death where you reach this Buddhist paradise. Oh, very interesting. So in a way, I mean, you and I chanced upon it, sort of um, approaching the caves almost in the way that it was designed to, uh, on yep. foot or on bike in a slower right. manner through the land Absol of the dead to, wow. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no wonder I, mm. I felt like just, just in awe after having biked that, that part. Right, I mean, it's an arduous, arduous journey. Imagine going on foot, you know, it would take hours. Uh, mm -hmm. literally on foot, and you'd be traveling through the desert. Uh, it's either hot or cold, you know, extremely cold. You know, so How cold is it today you, for you? It's cold. It's it's about uh, minus uh, 11 right now, minus 12. So that's Celsius. what in Fahrenheit. It's cold. It's, it's cold, yeah. <laughs> um, now, oh. I, I realized as, as, as you were speaking, some of our audience may be slightly confused with the changing names that we use. There's Dunhuang, uh, yep. there's Mogao. Sure. Yeah, so uh, Dunhuang is the oasis, the large oasis, the town itself. Uh, and then Mogao is this smaller space, um, you know, unparalleled heights is, is the translation. It's also, uh, it's also translated Caves of a Thousand Buddhas, uh, Chen Dong, right? It's another name for it. And so that's this uh, very, very small oasis, uh, this magical space uh, 25 kilometers away. Well, there are all other cave sites nearby, which I would recommend visiting uh, that are often not uh, often visited. Um, so, for example, Yuling, Western Thousand Buddha Caves, Eastern Thousand Buddha Caves. I mean, these are equally magical. Uh, mm -hmm. But all these areas, these are all Dunhuang caves, right? Dunhuang cave sites. Right. So, so Dunhuang is the larger area, and that's the name of yep. the airport that you fly into. But right. Mogao exactly. is yep. specifically the site where you are, and there are <laughs> a few others. I, right. I've visited some of these others too. I love them. Now, um, I know my team always love to ask you to recount the story of rediscovery of Dunhuang. Sure. So, so would you mind go back slightly and tell us why did Dunhuang art creation stop, first of all? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then yep. how was it rediscovered? Sure. Um, yeah, so in the 11th century, uh, the Tanguts or Shisha people took over this area. And cave production really slowed. It began to slow then. Uh, and then during the Yuan dynasty, the area was really devastated. And in the Ming dynasty, in fact, it was uh, Dunhuang, the oasis, was uh, uh, very neglected. There were very, very few people. And it was only in the Qing dynasty that people began to come from either eastern Gansu or Shanxi, and they began to move in and sort of resettle uh, Dunhuang. So during, you know, uh, 700 years, essentially, the caves had been neglected. Um, the, there simply wasn't the population to support ongoing production um, and maintenance. And so it was only during the late Qing period, right, in the late 19th century, that the caves were sort of rediscovered. Well, I wouldn't say rediscovered, but they were, um, they were again, it began to become a pilgrimage site once more. And then we also had Westerners who began to come into the area who brought attention to the, this space. And the earliest were Hungarians. And so it was uh, during that period that Westerners began to get wind, first of all, of the Buddhist art. And then later, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, this manuscript hoard that was hidden in the cave 
And so that and that cave is one of the most incredible archaeological finds, uh, certainly of the 20th century, um, you know, in some ways, in terms of its wealth, uh, unique, really unique in the world. And so in the year 1900, there is a self-appointed caretaker, a Taoist monk uh, by the name of Wang Yuanlu, who had been sort of refurbishing uh, the caves. He'd been doing this for merit. He also had a small temple and digging out the sand from the caves, uh, installing some new statues. And in one cave in the corridor, the story is that one of his assistants was there smoking a cigarette and there was a slight breeze from this crack in the wall, this crack in the plaster. Uh, So they tear the plaster off and behind the plaster, uh, they find this small cave with tens of thousands of manuscripts, also paintings, uh, some votive objects as well, religious objects. And that was in 1900. And Wang Yunlu is, he understood the significance that, you know, this is an incredible find because we have 50 or 60,000 manuscripts that date back a thousand years, you know. So this cave had been sealed up around the year 1000, uh, hidden for 900 years. And uh, he uncovers it. What he does is very interesting. he tries to get the attention of local officials, right? And so local Qing dynasty officials, and he, he gives them various manuscripts, uh, many of which were appreciated for the fine calligraphy uh, that they had. And he distributed some of these to say, uh, look, you know, and maybe not so directly, but look, you know, if here, uh, it'd be great if you could give me a donation for my temple, you know, for my renovation work. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't really happen. Uh, so... I think a lot of the officials didn't appreciate the value of these, um, wow. but word got out. Right? Word got out there. There were thousands of manuscripts in this uh, space that went back a thousand years or more. And so Westerners began to, to hear about this. And so in 1907, somebody by the name of Arl Stein, an archaeologist explorer, uh, then came to Mogao and convinced uh, Wang Yunlu to sell him thousands of manuscripts uh, for, a, for a small sum. But this was, you know, Wang Yanlu's goal was to get money to do a renovation. And so, uh, so Stein, you know, paid him, I think it was 200 pounds, about 200 pounds, maybe not that much. Uh, but uh, <laughs> not that much. <laughs> but for Wang Yanlu, it was a great deal of money. And he was unable to secure funds otherwise. So, you know, slightly on the sly, these were uh, packed up and carted off uh, to London. And then a series of other explorers came and other uh, scholars, for example, Pelio, Paul Pelio, uh, and then a Russian scholar and a Japanese scholar. And uh, Stein, of course, came back a couple of times. And eventually, of course, word got out. And uh, this scholar by the name of Paul Pelio, a French scholar uh, who was here, uh, selected a wide range of manuscripts which really sort of showcase the variety of materials that were there. And then he goes to Beijing and he shares this information with Chinese scholars. Mm-hmm. And so the earliest publications actually on Dunhuang materials come from Chinese scholars uh, from Beijing. But it was during that time then they then told officials in Beijing, oh, look, you know, there's this incredible material. We, we need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so materials were then taken to, to Beijing. But it's just this fascinating story about these, these scholars coming in and also, you know, uh, cultural differences about how these materials were understood. Uh, because again, in, in China during that period, there's no sense of collective ownership, right? There were no museums. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when these, these officials, these Qing officials uh, received these uh, manuscripts, uh, they, they became personal property, 
right? As opposed to property of the nation. Right. <laughs> so it's a very, it took a while for notions of national ownership or collective ownership to develop in China. There's an excellent book uh, we can put in the notes uh, about this whole process that really sort of lays bare uh, the difference in understanding, but also why did, uh, why did Qing officials help these foreign scholars and these foreign archaeologists? What's the book called? Uh, Compensations of Plunder by Justin Jacobs. It just came out. And so it's a very interesting analysis of this process of cooperation in some ways among elites, right? Because these local Qing officials saw themselves as equals to these uh, scholars and explorers who came from the West. Uh, they wanted to help them. And of course, being officials out in the desert, they're probably bored out of their minds as well. <laughs> it was nice to have visitors. <laughs> yeah, it was nice but to it, have someone who appreciates what you have, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Huh. yeah. So during the 1920s and 30s and 40s, there were a number of travelers, Chinese and Western, who came to Dunhuang and recorded their experiences. And these travelogues are great. There are these intrepid women travelers. For example, there is a woman by the name of Mildred Cable and uh, the French sisters who were missionaries who traveled up and down Gansu in the, in the 1930s and recorded their experiences in the books that they wrote. Another woman was someone by the name of Irene Vincent, who came here in the late 40s, first by herself when she was 29 years old. Wow. Uh, you know, she'd been living in China, took hundreds of photographs. She then comes back because she fell so in love with the site and she drags her husband back to come here a second time with her kids. She brings her two young children to Dunhuang. Wow. You know, this is in, I think, like in 1949 when travel was not exactly easy in China. But these, these travelogues are great because they give us a sense of how difficult it was uh, in, before any type of flights, you know, trains and this sort of thing, and how unspoiled the area was. I mean, not that it's spoiled now, but, um, you know, the rigors of traveling in China that, of course, we don't have to deal with but uh, all these great records of visitors. Very interesting. I'm curious, how did Dunhuang survive the Cultural Revolution? Well, it did. I mean, this is the remarkable thing. It, it survived extremely well. There is a story that Zhou Enlai was very supportive of the site. Of course, the Dunhuang Research Institute, uh, then now the Dunhuang Research Academy, was, had been established in the 40s. And I think one of the things we need to understand about the site is that there are a lot of popular elements, like I mentioned the baihua, the vernacular literature. And so a lot of it was seen as of the folk, right? Okay. Uh, it had this, this pe people's element to it. And so it wasn't necessarily understood as a site of elite culture, hmm. but of popular culture. Very interesting. Yeah, so it's, it didn't seem so out of reach. And because of Zhou Enlai's sort of protection, in a way, this place wasn't in danger during the Cultural Revolution. Right. Very cool. Right. Very cool. Now, uh, would you mind sort of taking Dunhuang and put it in the context of the other few caves in China you already mentioned, right? People think about mm, China, yeah. you want to look at grotto art or cave art, um, Dunhuang, one of them, Longmen, Maijishan, and Yungang. Yeah. These are mm -hmm. all along the stretch sort of leading uh, around Chang'an or around that area. Explain to us their relevance to each other. Sure. There's no tradition really of uh, caves in uh, China. I mean, this tradition of Buddhist caves, Buddhist cave sites comes from India uh, mm -hmm. and it's established quite early. Um, and they're often rock hewn or rock carved. This tradition then passes up through Central Asia, through what's now Xinjiang, uh, into the Hashi Quarter, uh, into Gansu, 
but also uh, this idea of building sites, for example, Longman or Daktong. Uh, this goes back, you know, to the fifth century, uh, fourth fifth century, and so these sites are typically located near large cities uh, that were carved uh, as basis for donors to show their faith, to show their piousness, to create merit. Um, but I think the main difference, some of the iconography is very, very similar, but the main difference is actually the materials that they're carved out of, right? So the spaces like uh, Longman or Daotong, they're hard rock. And so it means that you're limited in what you can do. And the difference between those spaces in uh, Dunhuang and Mogao is that the Mogao are, they're plaster coated caves, right? With fine murals on them. And so that type of art you get uh, is I think much more exquisite in terms of what you can do in terms of the artistic styles. It allows for a lot more flexibility. Uh, there are a lot more plurality and diversity in the type of imagery you can make because you're not actually carving it out of rock, you're painting it on plaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And does Mai Jishan feature in there? Uh, yeah, so Majishan is, is a sort of combination in some ways, right? So we have chambers that are very similar to what we have in Dunhuang, in Mogao, but they're often done in a slightly different way. They don't have as much plaster. The rock is certainly harder, but you have a lot of the same motifs. So uh, actually, Majishan is a great example of something in between the, the types of caves that we have, say, in Datong and Longman, and then what we have here in Dunhuang. It's also very early in you know, the influences, we have a lot of Central Asian, a lot of Indian influences, some, some Western Asian influences, even Greek influences that come into the Hashi Corridor that you can see in Dunhuang Caves, in Mogao, for example, in Maijishan, that we don't find as much of in cave sites further east. Mm-hmm. Let's go west out of China, uh, go to, say, the Bamiyan in Afghanistan, Chanta mm. in India. Is that the lineage you were talking about? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. That starts quite early in a place like Ajanta and then passes up through what's now Pakistan and Afghanistan and then into Xinjiang. And so we have this trail that's peppered uh, with cave sites. And, you know, in Xinjiang, there's some uh, stunning, stunning sites that really combine a lot of Western Asian influence, like Iranian influences, some Greek influences. And that trickles in, in some ways, into central China, but not so much. What's wondrous about uh, Dunhuang is that it is really between China and Central Asia, right? So it's this real nexus. It's this real place of, you know, uh, where these these influences are mixed and we see them, you know, in real depth. Does this trail you were referring to follow the same trail as the Silk Road, as we understand? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, very interesting. I think it probably will take another, maybe you should do a series of lectures about these various caves. <laughs> Happy <Otherwise>, to. <laughs> the, the conversation we just, I, I want to go in a thousand different directions <laughs> to go deeper. <laughs> but that's, that's what's so great about Dunhuang and Mogao. I mean, there's so much material, right? It's so rich. And I'm not just talking artistic, but also textual materials, right? About daily life. There's so much that we can find out. And the collection of materials from the library cave, right, cave uh, 17, are really, they're like an ethnographic collection, right, that gives us detailed information about people's lives on a really minute daily basis that we don't have anywhere else. You know, I treat it as a laboratory where you can, you can ask questions, you create hypotheses, and you have such a rich data set. We have legal documents, we have contracts, we have divorce contracts, 
right? You know, for example, from the Tang Dynasty, <laughs> things like this. <laughs> yeah. Do they have prenup agreements? Sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. But it shows us, you know, uh, details of a society in a really day-to-day way, day-to-day life. And we can trace uh, people's lives across manuscripts. We have examples of uh, people practicing their Chinese characters, right? And then we have, you know, documents that they wrote when they were 70 years old, right? The same person, right? So, so this incredibly rich set of materials that uh, we simply don't have anywhere else. Wow. How, but, how do you know it's the same uh, person yes. from like a kid um, to 70 years old? Well, because there are often colophons or comments about who wrote the document and when they wrote it. Right. And also, of course, you can actually trace handwriting among these manuscripts. You know? mm-hmm. So it's that amount of detail. Wow. Uh, but yeah, you can go in a thousand directions. Let's take a branch into digging to something I care a lot about, food. Are there sort of depiction like in imagery or in writing about food in the area? And later oh, yeah. on, like you are yeah. completely finding real examples in the areas around you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so we have images in the caves, right? Again, you know, aspects of social life that are painted where people are eating manto, right? <laughs> it's like this. Banquets, we have uh, scenes of banquets in the caves uh, mm-hmm. with the food laid out and the type of foods. We have texts that show what types of food people were paid in. For example, with the artisans, when they're building the caves, paid in certain types of grain and liquor, uh, you know, oils and things like this. But yeah, we have detailed records of food, seasonal foods, uh, which is amazing. What we should do sometime is create a Dunhuang banquet with foods from the Tang Dynasty, which would be brilliant. Wow, that sounds amazing. So what does the dining scene look like? I love traveling geographically along the Silk Road and sort of experience mm-hmm. the food diversity, right? In yes. yes. Closer to Dunhuang area, how the food is placed on the table looks much more Chinese, like just dishes. Mm-hmm. And then the further you go towards Kashgar or Central Asia, there's this whole spread of grapes mm-hmm. and salads and little mezze sort of way of eating. Yep. And I found the word mantel uh, changes along the geography right. as well. Uh, in Central Asia, they started calling it manti. Initially, I mm-hmm. didn't know what they were talking about. So what does it look like there in the caves? What does the food scene look like? Well, so the food scenes that we have in, in Mogao caves, for example, also in Yuli, are banquet settings where people are sitting around tables. And, and this is mostly Tang Dynasty and Five Dynasties, so 8th, 9th, 10th century. Uh, so at this point, it's, it's rather Chinese in sort of format and setting. Um, so Chinese banquets with the food laid out. It's quite impressive. <laughs> that is impressive. So if you were to create this food scene, Dunhuang food scene in the culinary experience, what would it look like? We do have lists of seasonal foods from Dunhuang manuscripts. I think for visitors here, they don't really get a sense of, of the seasons and the variety of local cuisine, in part because, you know, uh, a lot of the dishes that are made by families, you wouldn't find in restaurants. Uh, and so this is one thing, you know, to explore. For example, in the springtime, uh, they eat yuqian, which are elm seeds. Yeah, yeah. You see people picking them you know, in the countryside, and then on the street, they're pulling off the elm seeds from the uh, the branches. Uh, and then you fry them in batter. Wow, that's a spring yeah. dish. So this is, yeah, it's a spring dish. It's a dish that poor people would eat. Mm. Um, but people still do this. Um, you know, there are interesting types of local liquor 
that people make, right? So black goji liquor. Wow. Does, what does it taste like? The wine or Chinese medicinal wine or? Well, it's a, a type of yaojiu. It's a buyang, right? So like, right. Uh, I don't know if you know suoyang, this plant. It's a type mm. of root that grows in the desert. So people go out into the desert and they collect these roots and then they make this suoyangjiu mm. uh, out of it. Marinated in strong alcohol? Yes, exactly. Like 40, but it's 50% been... kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, but it's actually very very sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, here there's a lot of meats. You know, so we have yak, of course, and we have um, lots and lots of mutton. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and one of the things I should uh, emphasize is that there's a wide range of ethnicities here in the area that I think people don't understand. And so you know, we have the Aksai Kazakh Autonomous County nearby. It's grasslands, for example, grasslands near uh, Subay which is a Mongol autonomous county. And so in, in these grasslands, we have, of course, cows, we have yaks. You know, this, this area, Subay is known also for its horse racing. Yeah. Right? When you were saying yaks, of course, I was like, no, we're, we're talking about Xinjiang Desert. <laughs> like, we're not talking about well, Tibet, but that's interesting. But yeah, so I think one of the things, just like there's ethnic diversity, there's also a lot of geographical diversity in the area. Um, so we have a glacier hundred kilometers away. We have grasslands 80 kilometers away. Wow. Uh, you know, so all of this, it's not just a desert, right? So once you go slightly south where the Tibetan plateau begins, and it's not far, it's really not far. It's a you know, couple hours away. Um, you get this wide diversity of landscape. And of course, you know, the people who live there lead very, very different lives. Mm. That is very surprising to most people who think about Dunhuang. It's literally hopping, hop out destination. You go there just for the caves, maybe for the crescent moon-shaped pond and Mingsha Desert, and you exit. But what you are saying is there's such rich diversity, ethnicity, as well as landscape that you really need Mm -hmm. to spend a week or two there to explore. Yeah, I mean, there are opportunities for trekking. Uh, There are opportunities for camping. You know, again, in areas that are not desert, they're grasslands, you know, and really stunning, really, really stunning. We have, you know, mountains that are, I guess, in terms of feet, 18,000 feet high nearby. Again, glaciers, you know, so it's really quite a range. Mm, Fantastic. We'd have to do another trip with you. I want to just move into talk about the travel. In the past, I would fly from Xi'an to Dunhuang, but now I understand there is a train. Uh, and also, I would love to hear your top tips on the hotels and um, places. Ah, okay. Particularly the bar. So The bar, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll start with the vegetarian restaurant that we have. We have an excellent vegetarian restaurant here uh, for those non-meat eaters and with really creative dishes. So that's, a, yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful option. Uh, the bar that you mentioned, the bar is Moni, and it's it's this really intimate space. They have live music. The owner uh, is somebody who is really trying to create something that has some sort of local feeling uh, to it. And so it's adobe. Uh, there's a kang. You know, you can sit on this kang. Uh, kang is a heated bed, right? So yes. a, a flat space where you uh, sit uh, heated up from underneath, uh, necessary in the winter. But also just a very intimate space that's right off the night market. You know, and so that that's that's great. They make their own liquors, for example, Suoyangjiu, ah. things like this, uh, which which are great. Hotels, we have a couple of new hotels here, which is good. There are two new boutique hotels. 
which are quite nice uh, for this area. I think one yeah. is called Dongyu or Dongying. Ah,、uh, Dongyi. Yes. Yeah. yeah so the one is called Dongyi. Yeah, Dongyi. And then the other one, I'll have to get the name for you. But we, yeah, we can put them.、Uh, how how is、notes. the hotel on site at the Mogao Caves? Is that up and running? Well, that's yeah, that's an interesting space, right? So you can actually stay in front of the Mogao Caves.、Uh, there's a very very small hotel. I think it has 18 rooms. It's very basic, but it's it's not expensive. And what's really magical about that is that you can stay at Mogao.、Uh, the tourists leave. You have the entire place to yourself. Uh, of course, you can't go into the caves, but you can walk around, right? And it's really quite beautiful, and it's really quite, quite magical because it's it's quiet.、Uh, the landscape is stunning, and you really have the whole place to yourself. I think I would like to stay there. Yeah. So those are the restaurants, bars, and hotels. Yeah, and there are others. There are a variety of other places, but those are high on my list. And then、uh, you know, getting here, we have different options now. Of course, you can fly in. Uh, there are direct flights in the summertime from Beijing. There are flights, of course, from Xi'an. But you can also take the train, and there's this、uh, wonderful train from Lanzhou, an overnight train that has private compartments. So you can get a compartment with just two beds,、uh, which、right. is quite nice. Yeah, is there high speed? Yeah, there is a high speed train. It still takes, I believe,、oh, gosh, I'm going to say eight hours from、uh, Lanzhou. So it's still. That's. Otherwise, it's overnight. The reason I'm curious to find out is because you know I I just went back to Yunnan recently, and a trip that used to take three days driving now takes three hours. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah so, it's so yeah. I'm looking for that option. So we're not on the main trunk line that goes from Lanzhou to、uh, Xinjiang.、Urumqi. Yeah, we're slightly off that.、Uh, there high speed trains. There's now a train that goes from Dunhuang to Gurm to Golmud in Qinghai.、Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, so you can actually、uh, go from、uh, Dunhuang to Qinghai by train,、uh, and so that's another option if you want to explore Qinghai, which itself is remarkable. Yeah, yeah. So sounds like access-wise, it's it it. I mean, there is train, but it hasn't dramatically changed the setting, which I would say is a blessing. Right, that means、yeah. your place will stay still a little bit harder to access.、So、you have to make an effort for、mm-hmm. it, but also means it fends、right. off the millions and millions of tourists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Dunhuang is isolated, but that makes it magical in many, many ways. You know, because it's it's a small town, right? It's an oasis with a small town, the small the city of Dunhuang, small for China, but it's a very comfortable place, right? It's very walkable. The city itself is very walkable.、Yeah. There's a nice night market. You know, I can walk across the city in twenty minutes, so it's it's very compact and it's very clean. Yeah, no, it sounds charming, particularly now in winter. I can imagine、mm-hmm. it's it's freezing cold, but blue blue skies and not so many outsiders, right? It's just a time、right. to research and study、yep. and look inward. Yeah, and so at Mogao, we only have a couple hundred visitors a day at that now.、So. Now, yeah, just very, very few, and it's it's blissfully quiet. I think you have to contrast the few hundred visitors that you get now to the peak time, which is how、right. many people a day? Well, it can be up when it's really peak. It can be up to twenty thousand a day. Yeah,、know? and I have to admit, it's really not pleasant. And you know, you do, you do not want to come during、uh, major holidays if you can avoid it. Otherwise, the seasons to come are、uh, late spring. 
you know, for me, when I live here year round, of course, you know, so uh, winter is great because it is quiet, uh, but late spring is great. And also the autumn is stunning. Mm. So late September, October, even November are just brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. The weather yeah. is incredible and uh, fewer tourists. Yeah, but we want to clarify for our listeners says May 1st to third sort of that first week of may is a chinese public holiday and then the yeah. october first week of october is a major holiday right. and most right. likely july and august because the schools are out it's going to be very crowded right. so those are the dates to avoid yeah if you can afford yeah. other than that yeah. join neo in winter time well thank you so much this sounds amazing i wish i could be there now uh, and join yeah. you drink some goji baijiu. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I welcome you to come back. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoy this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M E I. Thank you and see you next time. <laughs>